And so as a third grader, I lost respect for the public education system. And so I didn't believe a word my teachers told me after that. And so inside of that, it was more so like this brewing frustration and rebellious attitude against the system. I didn't have the perspective of what's missing. I didn't have the perspective of what a perfect education system looked like. I just knew that I felt like I wasn't being told the whole truth. Hello and welcome to the very first round two episode of the Lewis and Kyle show. Today, we bring on William Brown for his second interview. We had our first conversation with Will back in July of 2020, July 16th, 2020 to be exact. And back then, Will had this really interesting story. He dropped out of school after one or two semesters, made a pretty large amount of money wholesaling real estate, and used all the proceeds from that to start his own self-funded AI tech company. He texted Kyle and I a few weeks ago, hey, remember that AI tech company I started two years ago when we were doing that podcast? I, uh, I'm ready to talk about it. I finally have something worth discussing. We have a product, we've launched something, and I want to come on the show for a second time now that the idea I was sharing so much excitement about two years ago is finally a reality in some ways. So that's exactly what we talk about. Will is now the founder and CEO of a company called Titan X. You can read about them at titanx.ai. This conversation discusses the product that Will has spent the last two years building, specifically why he built an AI for the real estate industry as the first vertical to go after. This conversation covers the challenges he's faced over the last two years, building that AI, what he's learned about AI in general, and what he's learned about building a technical team to tackle such a difficult unsolved problem with no one else ever having you know, any real success solving it in the way he was trying to do. Discuss growing his company as a young CEO, operating on a 30-year timescale, and always what we enjoy talking to Will about, if you've listened to the previous episode, is his unique psychology, his unique beliefs, his unique attitudes that have contributed to his successes and endurance as an entrepreneur going after really tough problems. That's all I have to say. Before we get started, I'm going to switch over to it now. Enjoy. Will, welcome back to the Lewis and Kyle Show. I think this is the very first official round two that we will be publishing. Woo! Taking it. Taking it. Put it in the books. All right. Thank you, gents, for the opportunity. Do we have to do this thing now, or is that is that good? Does, does this count as an episode number two? I just wanted to lock my spot, and I got somewhere else to be. Oh, uh, probably not going to count. Okay, but... all right, we have to, we got to do. All right, all right, let's do the thing then. Let's do the thing. We'll do the thing. That's that's the plan. You've got uh, you've been up to too much that we want to know about to uh, to not do the thing. I, I love you guys. You guys are so much fun. So good. Appreciated. That's why you're invited back, and in, uh, you're in the, the spot number two because we we feel the same way. But you know, real quick. Where were you two years ago? Where did we like leave off in terms of, you know, we had interviewed you because we'd heard you on the Bigger Pockets podcast. We're like, who's this 20, 21 year old kid on the Bigger Pockets podcast? First person I think either of us had ever heard on that show. Like, what's this person doing to get so ahead of the curve, so ahead of the game so quickly? And then, of course, listening to it, we're like, well, he's also fascinating. So let's talk to him. He'd wholesaled tons of real estate, he dropped out of school. Those things happened in the opposite order from how I just described them. And then you were fascinated by AI and convinced that. Not only was it going to change the world, but you were going to lead the charge in some important way. So you spent two years doing that with, from what I could tell, full enthusiasm the whole way along uh, with some hobbies and interesting things picked up. But what's happened? Where were you when we left off? Where are you today? And uh, what are we going to talk about today? Yeah, let's see. There's, there's so many different dimensions to go on. So maybe just like, you know, if I synthesized all of them, I would say that who I am is the embodiment of the fact that the wiser you get, the stupider you feel. I'll let that, that soak in because 
when you don't know what you don't know, you do crazy things. You do crazy things because you just don't know that they're crazy. And you're like, well, why not? And that's an extreme place of power. And so for me, that crazy thing was, you know, having a conversation in a hot tub in Cabo San Lucas in May, March of 2019, and then moving across the country to say, hey, I'm going to go build AI. Between now and then, I are between, like, I've discovered that even back when I was in college and back when I was doing my wholesaling, I would like record conversations and voice memos. And there was this thread of talking about AI, of talking about potential applications. It's almost like it's been there all along. What I've just been up to now is like giving birth to it. If it sort of, what's the, what's the word? This might get a little bit graphic here. You know, the gestation period. You know, if it was growing inside of me for the first 18 years of my life, this like new organism, this, this desire to, you know, get this thing out of my, my body and into the world, it was knocking at the door, it was screaming, saying, school is not going to be the way. School is not the way. I just felt, it just, it just seemed like there was a complete disconnect and created a lot of frustration. Um, but now, once I, once I dropped out of college and then got into, got into real estate, because I'd done a lot of research and I understood the inefficiency, I understood what, you know, how value transactions worked and how you can exchange value. It has now been on this like process of solving what I can only describe as the most complex, like multidimensional puzzle I have ever worked on. I used to love solving puzzles as a kid, but from the standpoint of just the technology alone, I don't know how many lines of code. I don't know how many different layers of pieces I lost track long ago, but then to add that to all these other sides of it, like adding the complexity of actually building a team and hiring quality human beings to work together every single day, working on stuff that there's no recipe, that's a puzzle in itself. Being able to raise capital, to pay them, to put food on the table, to be able to get that talent that's worth working with, like that's another puzzle. And now to bring it full speed, two and a half years later, you know, patent, patent filed, you know, technology locked down, product ready to go, nearly fully baked actually bringing that to the market and actually saying, Hey, use this, try it out. See what the real work, see how it will work for you. Hire this into your business is its own puzzle. And so I've just been solving one set of puzzles after the next, after the next, after the next, which interestingly enough, I find the greatest challenge is more or less having to forget everything that I know when it comes to solving a different type of puzzle. It's like doing algebra and then painting. You can't just use the same technique that you did, even though the principles between the two might be the same or very similar. Does that, That's a, does that answer the question? How, how have I been? What have I been up to? It's an answer to the question. No, yeah. that, that, that counts. Um, for, you know, AI is a term. That was probably, again, if I was to pull out the message, that's like the, the important word you said of all the words you said, right? That's the job as the host to, to notice the words. But what are you conceptualizing AI as both, again, this is always the tough part of speaking with you is we want to get like crazy, just philosophical and like speak about the essence of like life and self. And we're also, you know, very fascinated by how you're putting food on the table for yourself by the applications of these ideas. So how do you consider AI both in the most abstract context of importance to you? And then also in terms of like, if you feel that you've successfully created an AI and you can correct my language here, but like, what does the one that you feel as if you've created does in the bigger picture of it as a huge philosophical concept of like mass importance. Yeah. So 
let's let's see how do we want to break that down i when i was when i was first getting started i'd find that there's a lot of people that have like seven steps to x or like five rules for y and i tried to start modeling the world in that way and the problem was they kept breaking when i learned new information and so i don't really have any set ways of saying here's exactly what it is it really evolves every day every moment and so where it's at today and from my perspective on it ai is simply a way of bringing efficiency into the systems of how the world works there is a massive amount of ai intelligence if you will in nature it's just we don't call it artificial we just call it natural intelligence right mother nature and if you think about it mother nature is extremely efficient between the diversity of the species and how energy gets transferred from the sun to create this like ecosystem and environment that allows us to grow up in it's all because there was intelligent processing and calculations of how energy was going to be transferred at the most fundamental level that's what's happening to go to the other end of the spectrum right with the application of ai of with our first ai what we built for real estate solves the exact same problem that when i was running my human-based team we were putting a massive amount of energy in with very little energy back and what that looked like was following up and calling people all day long who would say, hey, I'm interested in selling my house through one of the means of marketing and not being able to get them back on the phone, not being able to capture enough of their interest or attention at the beginning to actually have them say, hey, here's why you should go with us. Because buying real estate's a commodity. If you've got a check for say 150,000 and I've got a check for 150,000 and we're trying to buy Kyle's house, right? It doesn't really matter anything else to him that's the most important factor and so this idea of going back to efficiency goes back to stone tools goes back to the wheel goes back to human beings wanting to do different things and we come up with tools to make it more efficient that has not changed and so what we've built is now just a tool that sort of takes the form of a virtual employee that's actually able to be hired into somebody's business and intelligently qualify and follow up with their leads such that the actual trained human beings can focus on having the conversations with the people that are most worth having a conversation with. So, I mean, let's walk through practically what this gives to uh, somebody who wholesales real estate. Like, what do they not have now that they will have with Titan, like from start to finish? If I go back to my, my story, I was in one market, Virginia Beach, and then I wanted to open up into a couple other markets. And I was tracking my KPIs rigorously, right? My key performance indicators. And I was seeing that with each incremental dollar that I spent on top of like, say, five or $10,000 a month, I was getting less money back out of each dollar, diminishing margin returns, right? basic like first principle of economics if we eat one cookie the second cookie brings us less utility and so on and so this problem of not really being able to scale my marketing and proportionally scale my revenue boiled down to one thing and i had to be very curious about solving this problem because you don't hear gurus talking about it they talk about all the different things you do on the front end on the back end but they don't talk to you about how to convert those in the middle and i realized it was simply just the amount of time that my team was spending chasing after people that were not willing to sell or that we, they didn't know that they weren't willing to sell. 
And so what this technology does is it has a conversation with the seller at the point of first contact. That's rapport building and qualifying them on figuring out their seller's motivation, their timeline, their condition, and the price that they want, and then passing that information on to the investor. In the meantime, it's also answering questions and handling any objections that the seller might come up with in response to those questions that we ask. And all this is done through just a natural text message conversation. So now, you know, Kyle's, you know, say Kyle and Lewis wholesaling business, you know, is you're generating 10 leads a day before, and you were getting the phone number and maybe the address and name, but you had to brute force follow up with those people to try to get them back on the phone and say, hey, here's who's actually interested. Here's who I should spend time talking to. And in order to do that, you have to treat each lead like it's a possible deal to be put under contract the next day. There's no other way around it. You don't have transparency. It's opaque to your, you don't have visibility into their situation. With this tool, now you do. So with the same marketing, whether you're using mail or online, you know, SEO, PPC, or you're doing radio ads or going on TV, whatever that is, people are coming through and the seller's experience is they're actually being able to engage and start building that relationship with your brand, with your company, rather than just filling out a form and being put in the dark for the next couple hours or next couple of days while they wait to have somebody, you know, try and reach back out to them. And in the meantime, they could have gone with somebody else. So it's qualifying inbound leads. How is this different from uh, having just like a cold calling farm somewhere that is either taking or answering calls and having, you know, having them answer all of those questions or asking all of those questions to the seller? Um, and then, yeah, I'll let you answer that first. Mm -hmm. So if we look at like, because let me tell you, it'd be a lot easier to build a call center than to build an AI that's to solve a problem that no other technology has yet. Um, what are the constraints to that? Because on a one-off basis, you could say a well-trained person and our technology, it has the same effect, right? Because it's a pretty basic conversation that's had. The constraint comes to scale. And not just scaling in quantity, but also scaling the quality. Because when you're managing a call center, you're grappling with about a 40% turnover rate every single year. And because if you want to run a call center that can actually grow and serve a lot of people, you're focused on quantity of calls and having people just follow scripts. So you're never actually going to be able to get to the point where it's your, the learnings isolated from all the conversations that are happening and there's they're separated with each rep so each rep making those calls is going to be able to learn from solely the conversations that they're having the difference with us is it's like a hive mind it's learning from all the conversations and constantly unlocking and improving new skills like negotiating price setting appointments and following up which are things that beyond just like again a very simple script the effectiveness when the people who are just simply focused on quantity won't ever be able to get to, plus the cost of training and running and managing that operation is far more expensive. I mean, I think there's a lot of really good forces at play there. I think you introduced the possibility of compounding into your process, right? I think, I don't know if this is a, an appropriate analogy, but for example, a Tesla, right? There's like however many hundreds of thousands of Tesla vehicles going on the road. The vehicle notices something that, you know, an environmental pattern signals some danger and it recognizes that like teaches the algorithm how to respond to that. It's a data point. And now all Teslas are trained on that same data point immediately. Whereas right. One driver just learned that one thing. And that's the driver who 
you know, Kyle will laugh at this, who like stops at stop signs at nights because there could be a cyclist in front of you by the gas station. But now like all of these know that that spot, there's that cyclist there who just like has the blind spot. And the whole fleet of Tesla cars forever and always know that from now on. And you just will never be able to replicate that. So I think with humans, my, my question is, the theory makes a lot of sense. What have you observed to the extent you're willing to share, of course, in practice of this has the potential to make the learnings of 40 people and apply it to one person and that one machine is just becoming insanely intelligent? Or is that just a nice idea that you hope will play out over time as more and more people use this? Or do you have case studies that point to this is already going according to plan to some extent? Yes. So when we're talking about compounding, we're talking about exponential learning. And I would equate it very similar to like that penny doubling every day. Right. Kind of, And I don't know the exact number, but it's like at day 20, it's at $5. At day 30, it's at like 5 million. And so I would say we're still in the very early stages, but what we're most focused on is creating a smooth and seamless experience for the person who's actually interested in selling their house. And for people that are actually interested in selling their house, actually asking domain like relevant questions things like that because most people don't just waste their time responding to advertising just to mess with somebody on the other side it's just not something we see we're about 90 percent in terms of being able to perfectly answer their questions or variations of the question they ask handle their objections and get all of the information and so from that standpoint that's because we just started with name, number, and address and validating those fields. We, you know, we use a couple of Google Maps APIs, et cetera, to make sure we get their address. And now that we have that functionality, we're coming back and using that to actually give a range to offer and negotiate and go back and forth. And so there's this learning curve for each new question that we ask for each new feature that we build. It's a bit of a rough patch, a little bit of a bumpy ride for the first couple of conversations while we understand, like, I wouldn't even say like, what are the edge cases? But what are the common categories of responses that we see in response to this new question related, uh, like related to how we want to keep moving the conversation forward? And so our time to learn after reviewing each conversation, now we're up to about qualifying 100 leads per week, about 25 different markets and scaling up as we just launched like a month ago. And now we're actually putting the sales team in place and you know solving that puzzle of just a lot of large numbers. Um, but yeah, in terms of the data, say how much have we learned objectively over time? Uh, it's really hard to, to calculate that. We just look at the throughput rate of each person who's actually like our target customer at the top of that conversation. How many, how many people get to the very bottom without a hitch? Yeah. So I was going to say if, so a successful interaction, would be all the information's captured. A lead has been added to your system, right? So that's like a successful event. Yes. So that's kind of like the good enough, good enough criteria. Yep. for performance that makes and sense soon soon it will be if we were able to validate the riders did we also need did we also complete a successful negotiation and completing a successful negotiation doesn't mean we got them to agree to our price right it means we're able to turn over all the rocks and get all the information and have the back and forth conversation that we wanted to and then okay if we were able to complete the successful negotiation and if their asking price fits within our range were we able to successfully schedule the appointment Right. That's the next step that we just keep layering on. And then, okay, if we were able to, you know, do all that and schedule appointment, were we able to successfully check in and confirm the appointment, say the day before and the day of? Awesome. So, so that's how just, it keeps growing. Yeah. You're just progressive. You're just progressively cannibalizing additional human steps as time goes on. Yes. So the leads are yours or they're the wholesalers? Like where was and. So does, this doesn't replace a wholesaler's advertising cost. 
it adds to it and and reduces their overhead in terms of like you know employees once that lead is in their system is that correct yeah so it's kind of like is it a cost saver or is it a revenue generator on on one hand if you look at it from the lens of removing an employee obviously that's a cost saver because it can do it much cheaper but on the other hand of increasing the conversion rate and a closability of leads because you're increasing the speed to lead of the same amount of marketing that was done by the wholesaler if you look at it through that it's also a revenue driver mm -hmm. so but this is not you're not you don't have a funnel for leads coming into the software that you then send to other people this this is like I, as the wholesaler, will, you know, put all of my leads into this bucket that then convert through this filter, which is like a first touch filter, essentially. Yeah. So right now you say you're doing 5,000 pieces of mail per month. You simply swap out the messaging on that mailer from like call us, you know, to, hear mm -hmm. to text your address to get a cash offer. And you swap out the market, the phone number with a phone number you create inside our system. And then that's how it comes in for the top of funnel. Yes. Cool. So you own all your traffic. You own all your leads. We don't resell the leads to anybody, right? It's you, all your traffic is your leads that then will go into your CRM, which now we're actually working on building the follow-up such that we can continue to nurture and stay on top of those leads throughout the process rather than just handing it off after that initial conversation. So tell us about some, some best case scenarios across a couple of time horizons for yourself uh, with the company and this product maybe like a year from now, what's really spectacular place to be. And then to the extent you're willing to share like a couple years, two to five, maybe in terms of like where you take the, th like, cause organizationally, right. You've learned a ton about a ton of things. It's like, what are you going to do with the knowledge you've built and the leverage yeah. point of leverage you've, the tools you've built for yourself internally that other people just simply don't have. So I'll speak to that in like a two, like two full, two fold answer from the company standpoint. Cause I'll speak to like the company and the tech. Because as it relates to like me, you know, I'm dating a girl. She's great. I've got some good hobbies. My life is pretty balanced. My, my passion right now, I'm in the building phase of my life, is building this company. And so from the company standpoint, the goal is to be able to have it in multiple different industries. And so after real estate investment, we're going into retail. And then we're going to go into mortgage and then property management. And all these ones were tangentially similar conversation to the one that we're already having, which means more or less we can transfer a lot of the learnings that we've already had into the new conversation, swap out a two, couple things, and it'll be, it'll be good. Less, we're not having to build it from scratch. Let's just call that the next two years is building this for applications for sales, lead qualification, more of the sales-like sector of the business. After that, once we've had, let's just call it like, a million conversations. We will have a very strong set of tooling to be able to then go in and a lot of data and start building out like bespoke customer service applications to start piloting with Fortune 100 companies. The people who suffer most from the problem that we talked about earlier about the scalability of call centers. What does suffering look like for Bank of America? A billion dollars a year put into their training and their call centers, right? And so that's actually, for me, why we started this. I went from real estate and then I wanted to go tackle a big problem. And then I've sort of gone back to real estate as our go-to-market because I understood the inefficiency here that we could solve and use as a launch pad and start generating these conversations early on. But the problem with customer service is that it's expensive for everybody. And 
It's expensive for the company to train, to be able to build all that. It's expensive for the consumer because they have to wait. They have to put a lot. I don't know about you guys, but I get super frustrated when I've got a very simple thing that I need to do. And it seems like in today's world, it should be very easy to do. And then you end up waiting on hold for 45 minutes, being transferred three times, then getting hung up on and having to start again. No, I, I like, I let myself get frustrated. I let myself feel that. And then to remember that there's, you know, a couple billion people in the world and that that happens, you know, probably hundreds of millions of times per day across the world. It's like, man, there's probably got to be a better way to that. We're talking about putting people on Mars and we still are putting people on hold. Let's, let's get our priority straight here. And so let's talk about the benefit. Number one, from the cost saving for the consumer, a better experience. You know, you call up, you can text American Airlines and say, hey, I want to book a flight to Miami. What are some next times? You know, what are the next flights leaving from L.A. in, you know, the next 40 hours, right? Being able to do that and make it more conversational. Like you always have a rep on standby ready to assist you. And then from the company standpoint, not only are they saving money because they don't have to build all that out, but they're also benefiting from that many persons learning going into one from many conversations. And they're able to cluster not only issues that people have and send them to their IT support to fix websites or whatever in real time, but they're able to see patterns across segments of their, of their customers and across like the desires and what customers are really dealing with in such a way that right now they pay millions and millions of dollars of consultants to do, not understanding they have an army of people knocking on their door every single day trying to tell them what they could do better. And so being able to let them digest that data is something that I'm super, super passionate about because that means they're going to go and reinvest that and create even better experiences. And so if you look and you like Google, like what's the one out of 10 rating for like the top 50 companies in the world? I don't think you'll find somebody that's above a four out of 10. Most of them are like a one, two or three. And so the bar is consistently low and because it's low, Companies aren't necessarily losing customers to other people because of customer service. But as soon as somebody runs that four minute mile, as soon as somebody builds a technology that has these different benefits or they license it, other, they're going to start sucking customers from their competitors, which is going to create a massive amount of, let's just call it incentive for companies to innovate their customer service. Yeah, there's definitely some like verbiage from complexity theory that I feel like would be helpful with what I'm trying to say, but you're trying to make it so, and I don't want to like use the, the biggest cliche in the book, but essentially you want to build like an anti-fragile system where what you're providing for them actually benefits. So currently like having a larger variety of crazy requests and customers with like a variety of demands doing interesting things like that makes it worse for them. Like the, the more problems that are going unsolved, like the more unhappy everyone is. But if you have, you know, you interject into that, dynamic or this two the, between the two points in the system some intelligent entity and intelligent is whatever uh that actually benefits like from the more that is thrown at it the more stronger it's going to grow over time so you're essentially re reversing the goal right is to reverse the entire paradigm where like the more that happens the more angry customers now you're interjecting something right in the middle that's going to get better with time instead of just the situation getting worse and worse and worse and worse while building a data set of what it means to have helpful conversations between computers and human beings, which does not exist today. What does exist today is hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars going into models at big tech companies that's scraping what you could call 40% of the internet, Reddit, Wikipedia, all these things. And they're using that to build a language model to then think that this will be able to converse. 
but it's sort of that garbage in garbage out model, but that's yep. the only large scale, like access to data that they have. My belief is that if you do that, it's a liability and it's also super clunky for the company because they can't customize it to specific policies. More that makes over, sense. If you train it on actual conversational data, helping people, you understand, I don't, I don't want to get like too technical and, and you know, lose people here, but you understand people's desires and why they're having a conversation beyond just the surface level intent and beyond just keywords. You can actually connect all the strings in that conversation to say, here's what this person's really after. And if it was a not a it was not a smooth experience, it can say, how can we make it smoother? Let's try this thing. And it can actually operate and self-correct inside these conversations when you're at that scale of data. It's just there's no way to like shortcut or hack your way there because you need the good quality data to train even better and smoother and more adaptive AI. But in order to get that good quality data, you need to be able to have computers having good quality conversations. And that's where, you know, this industry, most people have said, I'm going to wait for somebody else to do something about it because this is too complex of a problem to solve. I have no idea about how to build this data set. Actually, unless you want to go a different direction. It might be a different direction. But if that's the case, why wouldn't you just, like, um, maximize, this is not the word, optimize for the total number of incoming messages or conversations rather than, like, I guess, charging per, and I don't even know if that's the way you're charging, but let's just say there is a a dollar cost per conversation. Mm -hmm. Like, if the value is in the model or the language model becoming better with as much data as possible coming in, like, why wouldn't you optimize for that? Well, when you say optimize for that, like, how would, how would you optimize for that? What are you, what are you thinking? That's it's nice. like, I guess, give it away for free is like what comes immediately to mind or, you know, it, it, cause if you're trying to have as much conversations as possible in order to build that data set, in order to make your model the best in the world, it, it like would make sense for, to me for you to want as many people in the world trying to use this as possible? Yeah, that's a good question. And my answer for that is unfortunately not technical. My answer is the reality of solving a business puzzle and being Mm -hmm. able to prove out that, hey, this is extremely expensive to build. There's a lot of infrastructure, right? If I had a billion dollars in my pocket or say I even had like a hundred million, I would probably go that route. Mm -hmm. However, when you go down a road that's not proven, the best like bargaining chips that you have is to be able to show that people are willing to pay for it, even at small mm-hmm. scales. And so it, showing the willingness to pay then can be surmised that that willingness to pay will also scale and that there's not as much risk investing in this for the later than for, for today, especially in such a world that sometimes I look around me and it's like a graveyard where there's a lot of companies that have attempted to do this and did not make it all the way. And so that's the reality that I stepped into. That's the environment. And I, like I said, I would love to, to do that. I would love to be able to set that up. And potentially, even in some other instances, we might open it up when we do beta testing in new industries. It is free and we give people lifetime incentives for using that, You know, putting their marketing through us and trying us out. But from the business model standpoint, 
I either I'm not smart enough to figure out how to still raise, say, ten million at a hundred million dollar valuation today, but the or maybe the people I'm having conversations with aren't the right people. But I have been starkly faced with the reality of like proving this out and proving that there's a market for it and that this is different than other people's, you know, build your own decision tree chatbots. Yeah, there was a tweet today from CZ, who's the person from Binance, which is like one of the Chinese crypto exchanges. Uh, maybe that's an accurate way to describe it. They're a humongous crypto company, one of the biggest in the world. And he put a tweet today that's like, you know, over the past two years, we didn't name any stadiums. We didn't, um, you know, have any celebrity endorsement TV commercials. And we're still hiring, like, as much as we were telling people we're hiring six months ago. Whereas kind of the, the subtweet is like, here are these other giants that are now cutting hiring from tripling headcount to zero headcount or and laying off people. And he's like, you know, we didn't buy the stadium, but just, you know, some people optimize for longevity of the business. Right. And because that's a factor at play as well. You know, you're not purely dealing in like an academic abstract realm where making your paycheck and not just for you to survive, but again, for like this complex puzzle of a business that is more than just a group of people dedicated to solving a problem. It's a group of people with a complex variety of constraints dedicated to solving a problem that part of the game is making sure you can keep playing the game. So I think that makes sense. hundred percent. And the other thing I would say to it too, is like, are you guys still just as much into fitness as like two years ago? I'd say in spirit. <laughs> spirit right? uh, why don't you have 200 grams of protein a day? I think Liz does. <laughs> <laughs> I think Lewis, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a good question. No, I, I don't know. I just was thinking about like the, you know, what having as much data as possible would do to that model and, and how valuable it could be if you could pour, you know, fire gasoline on the fire. But uh, how do you think like uh, Titan kind of plays long term into the development of, uh, I guess, AGI or, or like the next step in artificial intelligence? And do you feel like in your everyday work, that you are contributing in some way to uh, that eventual reality, whether positive or negative. Yeah. So as a, as a, as a closing thought, the reason I asked about the protein is the body can only digest so much protein at a time. Same thing with an early stage company and data. And unless you want to just completely throw away the ability to control and fine tune the way that you use that data, you don't and want to so, paperclip your own company. That makes sense. Yeah, there's there's just like serious digestion problems at the very beginning that mm. most people don't even want to deal with. And so they just train a huge model, they throw it out there, and then it works sometimes, it doesn't work sometimes, they have no idea why it does or doesn't. That, to me, did not seem scalable. And to what Lewis was saying is about building a company to last. I'm in this game for the next 20, 30 years, right? I'm in the 1% improvement a day compounded rather than trying to find growth hacks to then like find a shortcut together. Because if it was there, if there was a shortcut, you can bet that somebody would have already found it. At the end of the day, having supervised conversations and learning from each one of those and then distilling those down into what we call policies inside of our technology that then we can apply that policy to another use case and be very modular with it is uh, I've never seen anyone do that with sort of this model where yeah, for us truly, having a lot more data than we're having right now is not helpful because we're in the infancy stage. It's like you wouldn't give a child a couple hundred chickens and say, grow up to be, you know, a big, strong bodybuilder in like two years. 
there's just these natural processes that nobody tells you about, about what it really takes to integrate this stuff. People talk, you know, a big game, but when it comes down to the actual execution, it's, there are just natural constraints when you have human beings working on something, there's learning curves for each new person that you bring on to be able to embed them in the system. So that's like, I, I don't know. I think I'm still trying to answer that question myself um, as it relates to like, you know, why, why not get more data? Are there, all, are there faster ways to grow? You know, I'm always thinking about that, always analyzing the environment. Um, so that's what yeah, I mean, it's it, this again, I'm using a lot of words that I only half understand, but I think like the term for like the study of dosage in general, or like the study of occurrences, right? Like ergodicity, I think is like the proper term for that, where it's like, again, a hundred grams of protein on one day is very different from one gram of protein over a hundred days. Working out for a thousand minutes in one day is very different than working out for 10 minutes over a hundred days. It's, it's the same thing, right? You can like on a spreadsheet in like the two dimensions of simplistic discussion of the topic, those things are equivalent. But when you bring those equivalent statements into the world as it is, then uh, things fall apart yeah. and don't, don't don't go so well. But there's obviously like there are circumstances sometimes where like you question your assumptions and like there truly is the right answer where it's like, no, we could actually. And this is like the Peter Thiel question, right? There is actually a way to achieve the 10-year goals in six months in this circumstance we're playing in. Uh, so that's why it's like worth asking about. But it just takes a lot of honest discussion and like studying of the landscape to acknowledge if you think your that does or does not apply to you in the domain you're talking about yeah i went on a hike and this will sort of go back to you know uh, kyle's question there like where do i see this going and i was i was hiking a couple weekends ago and i wanted to go get lost in the woods but not too lost in the woods uh you know i grew up i grew up in the woods and I, it's always been a place that's felt natural for me and so i discovered wait a second there's no easy way to forge your own path there's so much uncertainty, you have no idea. It's easy to walk on the trail that other people have walked. That's what most people do. Nothing wrong with it, right? It just sometimes gets a little crowded and noisy for my liking. But to actually forge your own path and to go to places and go ways people have not been before, I was crawling through one shrub or climbing a hill and dunking under a tree trunk. I was like, it wouldn't serve me trying to look at what I've done and calculate what's the best path, what's the best cardinal direction to go from here, because the terrain is unknown. The future only looks like the past in, in principle and in the patterns. And what I learned from that was, let's just say I didn't have like a cabin to go back to. Let's just say I did not know where I was gonna sleep and I had no more food. What I realized is that it does not matter how much I think I know. It's all about who I have with me and the expertise from the hikes that they've been on and their level of preparedness. And in that moment, I realized that great people build great companies. It's not great technology, it's not, it's great people. And so, because you're able to leverage their experience and they're walking on this path with you the first time too. And so when you're truly forging, right, you're forging your way, it's about taking it one step at a time and not doing things that are stupid. When companies do things that are stupid or they think that the market's going to always go up or they think that, you know, whatever, they're going to be fine for forever, no competition's going to move in, that's where they find themselves in trouble. That's where they find themselves going out and dying. So where do we plan to go? I plan to get to a place where my company is actually profitable very, very quickly, like inside of the next nine months. So by the end of quarter one of next year. And you know, that's, that's not like a hundred grand a year. That's, or sorry, a hundred grand a month, right? We got a team of 14 and we'll be planning to grow. So 
when I look at that, I look at what are the things that we can do today that we can build off of tomorrow, that we can build off of the next day, that we can build off of the next day. And eventually we'll hit this constraint where we'll see diminishing marginal returns going to re real estate investment. And our conversations will be more or less flawless. And there's not really a whole lot more we should do there. Then we'll open up into a new vertical and do the same thing. Then we'll open up into a new vertical. All the while, the technology that we built is continuing to serve that vertical and continue to create an unfair advantage for the users of that technology. And we'll do that until there's no more verticals and no more applications left to do. Upon which I truly believe we will be in a position from the standpoint of being able to build engaging conversational AI that Google is in terms of understanding what people search and understanding what people are buying. Because we will just be powering billions of conversations and then with that technology, after creating the world's smoothest customer experience, which is our mission, and having that data and being profitable along the way, we will be able to avoid, say, Wall Street and pure shareholder interest and actually take this model, take this data and use it to democratize access to personalized super intelligence for everybody. And to allow this AI and all the learnings that we've had from the billions of conversations actually serve you, Lewis, in your goals, you, Kyle, in your goals, you know, democratizing therapy, democratizing access for everybody to intelligence. For the people who have listened to the previous episode, of course, I'd recommend it for context. Uh, but right that right there is very, um, I'd say, like surprisingly similar to goals outlined two years ago. Uh, when we interviewed you before. So that's very cool to see, you know, even without the intent to stay on the same course, there's a lot of evidence pointing to the fact that you are. I want to ask you a question about the business from a, a personnel perspective. You talked about, you know, great people. And what are the most substantial things, like substantial open questions in your business that you just have really earnestly handed over to somebody else? Like, because you've brought up a lot of like the big questions that seems like you are the person taking the hours of day to think about this. But what are like huge, important, critical questions that like someone else is the person thinking about that, not you? Big questions. I would say, how do we sustainably grow our engineering department? And what are the habits and principles that we build today that will serve us down the road? And I would say, I, I've handed that to my CTO. Not only is he responsible for, you know, the day-to-day the -day work, overseeing that, managing engineers, software development itself is its own learning curve, right? It's not just a bunch of people laying bricks together. It's far more complex than that. And so from the standpoint of like technical feasibility and actually taking this, okay, we're going to have, we want to have these types of conversations to serve these people and we're going to have this type of data. How do we put that all together such that the system doesn't crash? Over there. How can we maximize our learnings? How can we maximize the efficiency and decrease the cost for our operations at scale? 100% over there. Let's see here. Some other big questions. You know, what I'm getting present to is that I don't ask them, I don't task them enough with it. And it's probably a, a function of what I don't know that I don't know, right? Because if I look, look at my CMO, am I tasking him with, hey, how are we going to position ourselves as a company? over the next five years. Are we talking about that? No, right? We're building our funnels for today. Uh, when I talk to my you know, CEO, I say, hey, how are we going to evolve our talent acquisition strategy as we gain more momentum and credibility? Probably not enough, 
I think that's an opportunity for me to be able to get them thinking on that as well. It's just a, what a, it's an interesting, going back to like forging your path through the woods, it's kind of similar to that when you're, when you're running a startup and have the constraints that, that like my startup does. Because to me, it sometimes feels like there's an the next quarter mile, there's the next mile, there's a place where are we going to camp tonight, right? How are we going to set it up? How are we going to, you know, train the new people coming on board? And then there's a the long-term thinking, right? So it's sort of the clouds in the dirt. I would say now that the product has been built, we're in execution mode. And we're in execution mode for today and the next couple quarters. Because if we don't nail that, and if we don't iterate on that and keep our focus on that, there will never be a someday. And so once there's enough layers between the actual day-to-day -day work and then people who are just tasked to just think about stuff and look at market data and look at trends, those conversations will probably be much bigger. But in the meantime, like it's, it's, it's go time. It's like, we built this thing. Now it's time to take it to the market. And so that's what we're tackling right now. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. It's more of a personal question. Um, like where, where do you think moving to LA has like impacted you over the last two years? Cause the last time we talked to you, you were just, you just kind of moved in, I think, or you you were there for a short period of time. So I'm interested to hear sort of an update and how that's kind of changed your, your personality, your life. Like, uh, you know, cause going from Virginia to LA is a, is a much larger difference than I think it's kind of understated in your story, but that's like huge. That's a really big difference. You know, I think everything from like the weather to the food to the proximity and diversity of people and just like opportunity to go for things is there. My most of my world, though, and this probably got reinforced really scaling our company inside the pandemic. You know, I've got people in Canada, Brazil, St. Louis, Arizona. I've got people all over. I've got a couple people in Los Angeles as well. And so for the most part, my office is just me. And now it's building an in-person sales team. But what's missing is I haven't really found my tribe inside of Los Angeles. I haven't really found other people who are, I don't know. I, I, sometimes I used to say the same, the thing like same age, same stage, um, variety of different people in variety of different stages. And I kind of have this, you know, question in the back of my mind, is Silicon Valley really where I need to be? Should I start be spending some time up there? Is that still where there's a concentration of this level of like just madness and chaos of thought and just like, you know, daringness to actually change the way that the world works? Sometimes I think about that. But from the standpoint of the personal life, personal well-being, all that, it's been great. It was a, it was a symbol of marking a new chapter for me. I love it. Every time I come home, I'm like even walking out and, you know, from LAX and it's, you know, it's super loud and there's a bunch of people just going nuts and stuff. I was like, I hit the warm air hits me and I, I feel like I'm home, which is, which is great. Cause I never really felt that when I was moving around or when I was in Virginia beach doing real estate stuff, I always felt like I was going to be somewhere else. I could see myself living here for a while, but again, I do have this like itch to go check out Silicon Valley. What are some interesting of those personal things you've picked up in LA? You've put a lot of them on Instagram. You've told me a lot of them just when we hung out. Like, what are some of the more interesting lifestyle habits, groups, skills, et cetera, that were not a part of your regular life that now are, that are like probably difficult for you to imagine not being there? Yeah, you know, I, uh, 
I've been getting connected to like a, there's like a healer community here in Los Angeles that do a lot of meditation, inner work, breath work, like sound baths, things like that. And I wouldn't say I'm like super deep in it, but you know, we'll, we'll host, we'll host events that are space for people as well for them to use. That's been cool. The fire spinning community, the dragon staff community, those people are wild. Honestly, like before, like last year when I more or less felt handcuffed because my product wasn't quite yet built. And I, I, I don't know, it's like struggling to find how can I actually be like effective here. I had more time on my hands to just think about some of these things and think about and realize it's about the who and I needed some, I needed to replace some team members. I needed to get some, some people in place that really knew what they were doing while that transition was happening. I went on some like crazy spiritual trips to Hawaii and then really got into the fire spinning community and really got into dragon staffing and loved like the tactile. I could touch something again because everything I do is like looking at a monitor and thinking, right? It's all, it's all in the ether. Lots of pros to that in terms of the business model, the scalability, all that. But in terms of evolution, not working for me, working against me. And so I'd say, yeah, like sort of the, the spiritual meditation, fire spinning community. I definitely feel how I've just been like ingrained in L.A. with that answer. And that totally like labels me as that. Uh, but it's great. I will love listening to this like a couple years back uh, from now and seeing, oh, yeah, that was a, that was a fun stage. I learned a lot about people and I'm kind of in this transition to say, what's my next chapter going to look like? Yeah. You talking about the tactile nature of like, uh, fire spinning and, and just those things in general versus being in front of screen in front of a screen kind of brought back to memory. My question, which was about, it's actually about a movie that I watched with my brother, maybe a month ago. Uh, and it's about time travel. It's a crazy movie. Highly recommend it. I think it's I think it's called like Circle or Box or something. Basically, it's just two guys who are friends who uh, are originally working on error correcting technology, but accidentally create uh, a time machine. But the point is that uh, there's this like moment of dialogue in the movie about how like in the past people would work together. Almost, it's almost like um, like. Uh, alchemy like they're they're using um ingredients and they don't know what it's going to create and they're just doing it for the sake of creation and that's how uh like crazy things were invented in the past that are that are we're just used to now and i feel like that sense of like um the ability to create a future that no one sees or expects is almost like gone from uh the american like culture um what do you think it is about you that makes you like believe that, you know, you can put ingredients together and create something that, uh, doesn't currently exist. And, you know, you, you don't know what will come out on the other side of that, like oven, let's say 99% ignorance, 1% boredom. <laughs> Truly, because that's a recipe for going for something. And if you can choose to take the first step, even though you're blind and you have no idea what's to come, you can make the conscious choice to take the second step and the third step and the fourth step, right? And I'll go to the very cliche saying of, it's not about how hard you can hit, it's about how hard you can get hit and keep going or keep moving forward. That's what innovating is like. And so for me, if I were to look at like, what if I didn't do this, which is not a thought I entertained them, I think about like, yeah, that's not interesting life would be hell because I would be 99% bored and only 1% ignorant. But staying at the cutting edge, I feel like my rate of growth 
my rate of absorption of new information about the world and just being excited about life is turned up to the max. And then that fuels me to take that next step and to keep going from the standpoint of if I knew what I knew now, would I go back to 19 years old and say, yes, I'm going to do this? I can honestly say I'm not sure because I would think I would probably have these reasonable, logical thoughts that, well, maybe I should get a little bit more experience. Maybe I should learn how tech companies are actually ran. And maybe trying to go prepare, I could spend my entire life preparing for something and never actually taking that first step. I think a variant of Kyle's question that I'd also like to hear you speak to is kind of about like a lost optimism for like people in America to like do substantial significant things in terms of like, not just in terms of money, right? Because I think a lot of people still have the ambition to, in a very like huckster copying-esque, I saw this person combine ingredients in this way. That's somewhat predictable. And if I replicated that, I would expect to make a similar amount of money. And that would be exciting because money's cool. But you seem to have like an optimism towards, again, like Kyle said, like a, you know, this will change the word in a fundamental, important way. Like where do you drive that optimism and possibly sustain it from? I would say very early on in public education, like third grade, you know, I learned about the path. I learned about how you get from elementary school to middle school, to high school, to college, so you can get a job. And I did this crazy thing and I actually like Googled some stuff and I Googled how many people like their job. And I Googled how many people get a job with a degree that they actually got in college. And the numbers are like 60% of people don't just dislike their job, but they hate their job. And it's like 70% of people have a job, but they don't have the degree in. And so as a third grader, I lost respect for the public education system. And so I didn't believe a word my teachers told me after that. And so inside of that, it was more so like this brewing frustration and rebellious attitude against the system. I didn't have the perspective of what's missing. I didn't have the perspective of what a perfect education system looked like. I just knew that I felt like I wasn't being told the whole truth. And I felt like I was being put into the system that's industrial revolution style era that's actually designed to strip away my creativity, to strip away my autonomy and create me as a worker. There's nothing wrong with that. The people in education are not bad people. We are just in a transitionary stage as a society of shedding our skin and our, this transition stage, you know, there was like the uh, hunter gatherer, hunter gatherer age, and then the agricultural age, and then the industrial revolution, and then the information age. And then now the artificial intelligence age, each one of those is like a halving function with the time. It gets faster and faster and faster. And nobody has on, alive has lived multiple generations to be able to see that. And so we're just in this transition where from a society, we have built an education system to fill people with factories because we thought that was the most efficient way for us to, you know, get stuff done. And then the factories got replaced by machinery, but now we still have people with machine mindsets. And that's why you don't have innovation. And that's why you don't have creativity is because you have everybody who's sort of like so confused because they don't even know what they want. Because the flame of innovation, the flame of creativity that I think exists inside each person was put out by their belief in the education system that was actively trying to destroy it long ago in their life and when their brain was formed of how their model of the world was built. So that's my answer. That's why I believe uh, you don't see that. And this is like a, a common thing, 100% how we, were, how we were raised and trained. That's an, I mean, it's an epidemic. It's like, I don't think there's anything else that would be better to solve for. 
really in like uh, our culture is solving for uh, like fanning that flame versus like dampening it or putting it out. Yeah, I have a question along those lines. Um, I, I again agree with you on the fact, and I've like viscerally related to that and very explicitly come to terms with that as like noticing various situations I've been in in life where I like feel like the fire behind my eyes purposely being reduced by the situation I'm in and like, you know, being very afraid of that being like somewhat permanent or long lasting. So obviously this is like sort of a situation where it's like you weren't some, well, you sort of were right. How do you advise an adult, right? Someone who's over 18 who feels like they did have just decades of conditioning and like stamping of the soul to like rejuvenate the soul and like build fire from within. And the other thing I would say about that, like a very conscious thought I have about speaking with you is you're just someone who has developed the ability to listen to themselves, trust their own intuition and like has the conviction to act on it. And I think those things are very much in touch, right? It's like fanning the flames of your own soul maybe makes it so it's like not a question, right? Like you couldn't live with yourself if you didn't, but what are your general like prescriptions for people who like, you know, see light behind your eyes and, you know, want that for themselves, but like weren't uh, precocious enough in third grade to break the spell that early. That's an excellent question, Lewis. Yeah. Um, well, I have a three-step plan. I'm just kidding. I've heard those are robust for dealing with the complexities of reality. So that should go I, well for us. I tell you what, I, I have a plan, but it's, it's going to be a $999 course that you need to buy and there we're going to upsell you a little bit. Do you have a payment our, plan? Uh, all right. Buy now, all, pay later. Yeah. Buy, buy now, pay later. All that aside, asking you that question in that hot tub of 2019, I was like, how do I give other people what I got? And what I got was basically this place of being able to do anything. And I saw that I was in a very rare situation and I became extremely grateful and I became extremely blessed for all of the conditions and circumstances in my life that worked for me and worked against me to put me in that position to say, what actually got me here? And what I realized was that I became, and I'm becoming the best version of myself, not by learning new things or adding to who I am, but stripping away what I'm not letting go of the things, carving away the things that I know are not authentic for me. And over the last couple of years, I've learned about the incredible infinite power of being your authentic self. And so what that means from person to person changes, right? Because there's no prescription for what it means for, you know, for you, Lewis, what it means to be authentically yourself is different than Kyle is different than me. But I would say that is the North star authenticity because that we have that idea of like what's right for us and what's not right for us for a reason. What I did was I just boldly started to start trusting that. And it's led me on this journey. Would it do the same thing for another person? I'm not sure, right? I only have my life, but when I study the greats and I study people who have done things like we're talking about, it's not people who found bits and pieces of other people and slapped them on themselves. It was people that, let go of all of the programming and all the garbage that life throws our way, cultivate an abundance mindset inside of an environment with scarce resources and says, if not me, then who? And whatever that looks like in terms of the problem that somebody wants to solve, I think I would uh, basically 
I'd lean on Jeff Bezos for this, where he says, you don't choose your passions, your passions choose you. And so this could literally quite be for somebody, you know, I, I hate the cliche because they're usually true, but because they're true and they're so common, we usually just dismiss them thinking that we need something, we need a piece of information that is new for it to be true. But the not find your passion, but like follow it, listen to it, do the things that light you up every single day, and then keep doing those things. And understand that every single choice that you make will either lead you closer to your authentic self or farther away. And so each step that you take farther away is another two steps you have to take coming back to authenticity. And so for me, like, you know, on the spot, thinking about that and what's deeply true for me, that would be my prescription is start to get in touch with authenticity. You've got it inside of you. I think uh, you're lucky if it's only sets you two steps back uh, to, to go the other path. But I think that's exceptionally helpful. And this is something I said in our previous episode. I think this is one of the ones people and myself included should listen to more than once to fully capture and appreciate. Well, you use the word abundance. Uh, and that reminded me of another like organization you've joined. I don't know if that's something you speak to or not, so we can go there, not go there. Uh, but if it is of interest to go there, what is the abundance related group you're in and how has that impacted your life? Yeah, sure. So this is a group called GoBundance. It's like a, what is it? Uh, a tribe of healthy, wealthy, generous men that choose to lead epic lives. And for me, who they are is role models in most aspects of life. Role models from how you can run a successful business and have a successful marriage and be a great, you know, dad at the same time. It's all it's all men. They also have like a GoBundance one for women. It's It's a role model of how you can stay a kid as you grow up and keep your sense of humor as you grow up. And it's a, it's a role model of like people of like, if I were to say from the type of like the way of being that I want to be in 10, 20, 30, 40 years, respectful, humble, curious, I would say I learn and I digest that from those guys uh, just subconsciously. From the standpoint of like inspiration, are there a lot of people changing the world? No, it's mostly a real estate group, people buying properties. But what they are is they're changing the world for their lineage. They're changing the world for their kids. They're cultivating abundance mindsets. Most of the guys, if not all of them, came from poverty or came from nothing. And so they are doing a massively important like step in the chain. And they're taking their kids and they're putting them on their shoulders. And so I got to respect the hell out of that. That sounds like a really, really sick group. Um, I'm curious what, I know you've done like Spartan races and stuff. What is your current, uh, exercise regimen? Are you like, do you have anything on the horizon? Have you done anything recently? Um, that was a, you know, fitness challenger goal. Yeah. Let's see here. I actually, now that I'm getting back into the sales conversation, which I haven't been in for three years, I'm realizing it's less about creativity and more about discipline. And so I'm realizing how do I cultivate discipline? I cultivate habits that encourage discipline. And so I just gone back to the gym about two weeks ago, loving it. Something that I did not like over the last two years because I was more in the creativity and the flow. But now that we're at the stage of just building discipline, physical feats, physical challenges, I dug a pretty deep hole with my buddy down in San Diego to have a fire pit in a couple of weekends ago. 
but that was nothing compared to like a, you know an actual obstacle course race. I would say I would say no, but but at this stage I'm I'm probably more open than I would have been over the last couple of years. Just again because I'm moving from that creativity free flow state of mind to more of that discipline by the numbers for this next chapter as we launch. So I'm open. You guys got ideas? I got to think about the parameters you've given me. I can get back to you on that. I'm not a AI supercomputer assistant, but if you give me a few hours or just like some back processing, I'll come up with something for sure. But on the fly, it's not there. Okay. Yeah. Just make sure you don't use a data set modeled after, you know, the millions of people on the internet. Cause you might you probably won't get good results. Right. <laughs> yeah. My, uh, my advice from the, the yeah, I would just prescribe cheese its and seed oils and, uh, You'll end up on the elliptical 60 minutes a day anyway, but like, that's not going to prove to be especially useful to you. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I mean, man, my, my relationship is that like my body has knows everything that there is to know about living and doing what's needed. Kind of like how our mind has its authentic self in terms of career and purpose. I think our body does as well. And it will give you feedback. I was just on a plane. I went from, uh, I went up to a conference in Vancouver for like one day and then in the same 24 hour period i flew over to toronto to go down to miami to go for a, for a meeting yesterday with somebody in person for a couple hours to then fly back to los angeles i can tell you my body was like this lifestyle is not living our best life after all of that flying and so i checked in with it i listened but it's just like i don't believe in being unnecessarily hard on myself when you're already up to a lot of hard things i believe you know building that balance over the long term will get you much farther than maybe short bursts of extreme amount of energy or extreme discipline. And for me, like I said, I plan to do with this over the next 20, 30 years, and then probably take on another venture, some, something probably space related. So it's for me, it's all about, I'm running a marathon here. And so I'm training my mind and body to do the same. Yeah. I'd say to answer the question from earlier about like, what have we been up to from fitness? I can answer to myself, at least I've primarily been occupied on like optimizing for like the fit, fitness decisions for sustained energy throughout the day. So like I used to just go as hard as I could in the morning, right? Just like max lifts at like between like six and 7 AM. And then just like wonder why I was like crashing midday. And it's like, well, that's kind of like hormonally meaning you're actually like healthy and a healthy hormone balance. And you're just like choosing to do things in a silly order. So it's like choosing to exercise in the morning in the way that's just a little bit to sweat. So it's like, or like same thing, a better analogy would be like the sauna. I used to just in like hardcore days, just like, the point of the sauna was proving to yourself how long you can stay in the sauna, right? Mm -hmm. Like that was what the sauna used to be for me. Uh, and I still don't get me wrong. Absolutely love that. But it's now it's about like going in the sauna is just enough to where like, you're right to feel euphoric and like leaving right then. Cause that's, what's going to like give you the coast throughout the rest of the day. So I'm like optimizing just for like sustained good feeling over time and like bare level maintenance, like stretching. I'm happy with as flexible as I am. So if I stretch 10 minutes twice a week, I keep that level. And mm -hmm. there's no like need for progress basically. But Kyle really seems excited to jump. Well, it just reminds me of the thing. Happy body. No, playing catch. Playing catch. We, uh, Lewis and I were at this like restaurant. I don't, I don't even know what you call it. Snakes Sna and lattes. Snakes and lattes. And, uh, <laughs> you like, there's like all these game boards, uh, board games. Wow. There's a lot of board games and you, you there's like a board game master that walks around and, uh, he was like telling us about all these games and he has a large data set, in his head. A large data set huge. There's no digestion problems either. 
Anyways, point being, he was talking to us about the the amount of time that we were going to play the game that we were playing, and he was like, "Once you get through two rounds, like it's probably over. Like you should probably just stop." And he was like, "A lot of time people uh, will play like they play catch." Yeah, yeah, it's just it never ends. And so this this concept of catch, I've I've been thinking about it a lot over the last week. Actually, it keeps coming back up in my head. It's like. Um, you two people out in the field are going to play catch until one person's absolutely miserable. And like, (laughs) if you just like stop when it feels right, it's like so much better for everybody. And I think just like the intuitive stopping and not playing things to death is like a really good model for, for like living life. I don't know. I don't know if this directly relates with fitness, but that the whole catch thing really stood out to me. So I'm glad that it made it on the podcast for sure. <laughs> totally. Yeah, that's that's. I mean, what I find is it's it's fascinating because if you're having a, a discovery, it usually like bubbles up from inside of you, then out your mouth, and then it's the world's to hear, right? You don't just keep it to yourself, and then you keep space for the next discovery. And I think it sort of goes back to the it simply put, that's law of diminishing marginal returns, right? With each throw that you have until you start to get to negative returns. And I don't know what the sweet spot is, but I would assume the sweet spot is also not starting and quitting everything like very soon, right? But sort of building consistency with how you do things. And yes, like obsessive behavior can lead to diminishing and negative marginal returns on your body, your well-being, your relationships. So it's kind of like what's fascinating is you hear about the startups, right? You hear about people that sleep in the office, they work 140 hours per week, but how many people do that consistently and actually scale their business? The end of the day, I don't hear about a whole lot, right? There's periods of time that you go through that, but it's kind of like the body. If you just keep sprinting, you just keep sprinting, eventually you will break down and you will be out for a very long time. If you start lifting and you lift way too much, right? It's kind of it's kind of the same thing to go back to that digestion. Another analogy is like, if I wanted to start, you know, if, if you gave me a million conversations to learn from, right? And we tried to lift all that right away, it could actually create some structural injuries that maybe we wouldn't see right now, but we would definitely see a couple of years down the road rather than building things and thinking things through adding layers at a time and building a really solid foundation, which, I think it's probably like the the conversation like thread is how strong is the foundation that you're building for what you want to build in the world. Even if that's just your body or that's just you or your family, like how much time are you spending on the foundation versus just trying to stack layers on so other people can see you and you can say, Hey, look at me, look what I've done. Yeah. I think that this is a really themed podcast almost. It comes back to what you were saying at the very, very beginning of this conversation, which is about, like organic and natural systems like that just occur and happen over time. It's like, right. Like moving one step at a time and, and, you know, creating that brick as you are building it and putting it in its place. It's like that occurs so that in the future, like, I don't know where I'm getting at with the brick analogy point is this natural versus artificial systems. Like, uh, point I think is really, um, permeated through this whole conversation. So I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Let's like, let's think how long have 
how how long has nature been around, consistently doing its thing, the whole time, a lot longer than we are, right? And so you know, I what was I was thinking, was it maybe it was the Joe Rogan podcast, maybe it was the Joe Rogan with Elon Musk, but they were talking about like how trees might be operating on a like multi hundred thousand year time scale, and that they don't really care about our activities. It's the equivalent of like a, a fruit fly to us relative to them. And so for some reason, and I'm actually very glad that as human beings, we make things significant and we make things mean things because it calls us into action and it calls us to do things that might not necessarily, like that might go against all odds or to see what other people have done and to take risks. But from the standpoint on, of longevity, I mean, you can't, you can't touch nature. So in terms of innovating, same thing. Right. And adapting to environmental conditions, you can't touch nature. You can't find me a company that or any human being that has adapted because I think we're part of nature. We are just accelerating evolution with every single thought that we have and every single thing that we do. Well, I don't know. Sometimes we might be decelerating, decelerating, decelerating evolution uh, with, with sometimes, you know, where we're going as a society. But nonetheless, if we make mistakes, we learn from them. And then we move forward. And so I actually have a really bright outlook on the future and where we're going as a species working hand in hand with intelligent technologies. I don't think I could be doing what I'm doing if I didn't. Yeah, I think that even what you just said about, you know, all systems, no natural system grows forever without corrections up and down. So even like society making tweaks one way or another is just, you know, signal that we're part of a system that has ups and downs and nothing grows for no, nothing good happens from things that grow forever. Right? That's, that's cancerous. People say, um, I felt like, okay. So I have collected my thoughts and then back to where I thought it was. I am grateful to know you will. I think Kyle and I immensely benefit from having had these conversations with you podcasts. We've had offline conversations and things otherwise as well. I've observed as well from hosting podcasts that the same short and sweet stop it on a good note instead of drawing it out to a specific point in time or anything like that usually results in the last couple of minutes not being quite the same as the first couple. I'd like to leave you a very open-ended question uh, to sign off on kind of a fun, positive note. What are some just general pieces of advice that maybe you think myself and Kyle would really be receptive to a piece of advice that you've been trying to give yourself that you need, or just like the general vague archetype of the quote unquote listener might benefit from hearing uh, any of those three. And then we'll sign off. I would say doubting yourself isn't going to give you the benefit that you think it does or you think it will. Mic drop. Mic drop. Will Brown part two, the first part two for a reason, perhaps even the first part three. Uh, we'll see though. Where for the people in this audience that are curious in your thoughts in general, your life updates or the sustainable business that you're going to be building, that you are building, where are the places to direct attention for the people who want to continue to be shepherded by our, our voices? Yeah. Uh, I don't like the implication of calling people listening sheep. That is what shepherd means, sort of. Uh, anyway. <laughs> um, well, you can write me a letter. <laughs> How many people have said that? You're the first one. You're the first one. Took you two podcasts to come up with it, but you are the first one. You're the only person who's had two shots on goal. So okay, that's true. That's true. It's unfair advantage. Um, well, no, the thing is writing a letter, people would have my personal address. I, I gave up my UPS mailbox. So unfortunately can't do that. But 
shoot me an email. I'll give it, I'll, I'll give like my, my email, my site and my, uh, my, my Instagram as well to see like more of a personal view into my life. Uh, email is William at titanx.ai, T-I-T-A-N-X.ai. Shoot me an email. Happy to chat about whatever. If we got something, you got something interesting you want to talk about, we'll jump on a call, rock about it. If you got think there's a way to partner, if you are you're in some stage of this journey and you're like, I'm at a fork in the road, I'm happy to get my time. I get so fulfilled. My cup gets filled like one and a half times over by by that kind of stuff. Same thing with Instagram, will.jbrown. Feel free to to reach out, ask any questions. I'll engage. I respond to everybody. And then from the same point of view, you're interested in like what we're up to in a professional sense, or if you're in real estate or want to just stay in the loop about what we're doing, you can check out, book a call with us at titanx.ai or like jump on our newsletter and just stay tuned in more of a passive way until maybe we come your way into our industry. And if you want us to come into your industry and you're like, hey, I have this problem, for me, having points of reference and be able to hear from people is extremely valuable as well in terms of informing our roadmap. So yeah, please reach out on any or all of those methods. Thank you, Will Brown, part two. See you later. Thank you, gents. That wraps up part two of our conversation with Will Brown, part two being two years spaced apart, of course. Three takeaways for me, and then we'll sign this thing off. First one is the importance of surrounding yourself with people who challenge you. Will is someone who will, whether you like it or not, deliver a very uncomfortable truth to help you get better and help you see how you're getting in your own way. Those people are super important to have in your life if you want to continuously grow. Uh, you know, people who make you feel like you're on top of the world, that's good too for the ego, whatever. But you know, if you want to stop making the same mistakes and stop falling victim to the same limiting beliefs, having people who will challenge your beliefs is critically important. So I encourage you to, I'm sure you know who those people are already in your life. So spend some more time with them, even if it's a little uncomfortable sometimes. Second one is the importance of, not the importance, the power of just sending a DM. So this entire relationship Kyle and I have with Will started because Kyle sent him a DM two years ago or so. And uh, look what's come from it. You know, we've hung out in person a lot. We were able to spend the weekend together in Arizona a few weeks after this podcast, just kind of a nice serendipity. And all of that came because Kyle had listened to this guy on a podcast, thought he was interesting and decided to shoot him a message. That's not something you need a podcast to do. If you have some specific question that that person might be uniquely suited to give you a specific answer for, you'd be surprised how many people will get back to you on a DM. And if you can kind of keep that relationship going continuously, you know, implementing their advice, telling them how it happened, then asking a the follow-up question, you'd be really surprised by how far that can go. Third takeaway are some unique advantages that Will has because of this long-term commitment and long-term vision uh, for himself to be a player in the field of AI. There's just different decisions and different mindsets he can have because he's simplified all other options. There's nothing else he's interested in for the next 30, 40 years besides AI. And there's really unique advantages that I find really inspiring uh, that only come from that level of commitment. And that's something I seek to model in, in a lot of ways. I think that this podcast is something I've been doing for a long time that I enjoy doing and I see doing long to the future, but I'd like to continue to have areas of focus and commitment, you know, the, picking a sport for 10 years, picking a city for 10 years. There are certain advantages that only come from that level of deep commitment and uh, exclusion of other options, removing of other options and decisiveness that are really, really advantageous once you're ready to uh, make that decision. That's all I have to say for this episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Again, if you want to get in touch with Will, it's pretty easy to reach on Instagram. I think he gave a few other options during the episode if you want to re-listen to those contact methods. And if you want more from Lewis and Kyle, make sure you're subscribed. 
It's super helpful to us if you leave a rating or a review, if you share the show with a friend, or if you don't do any of that and you just come back, listen to the next episode, listen to any of the 100 episodes we've already published that you haven't listened to yet, like this one. They're not especially time sensitive. We discuss things that are hopefully always useful. So the whole feed has a ton of value in it that I'm sure you haven't listened to all of yet. So that's your option if you can't wait till next week. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed. We'll see you in a week with the next episode. Bye-bye.